0: Amen. Migory Sal. Does anybody know that character? Anybody heard? You can raise your hand. Kids, what book is that from? Anybody? It's a really good one. It's a movie too. (laughs) Moneyball? No. Did you have it? It's a tale of Despero. I hear somebody whispering it back there. Not a kid, although she's small enough to be one. Oh, uh, it's okay. Small people are great. Uh, Migory Sal. Migory Sal is a uh, not the sharpest tool in the shed. Miggery Sal is a young lady who is a uh, maid in the house of the king. She has gotten there because her father had no regard for what Migory Sal wanted. And sold her to another person. For a red blanket, actually it was a tablecloth, and a good laying hen. Sold her away. And all through the story, nobody cares what Migory Sal wants. Miggery Sal, however, cares a lot about what she wants. And her deepest desire is to become a princess. Migory Sal wants to be considered. She wants to be beautiful. She wants to be adored. She wants to be famous. And it's this desire that gets twisted and manipulated by the evil rat, Rascuro. The Tale of Despero is a story of evil rats and a kind mouse and a princess who needs saving. And Rascuro is the wicked rat who lives in eternal darkness in the dungeon, who's crept up one day to, to visit the light, is discovered by the Princess P and, uh, and shooed from the room. And he, from then on, hates the Princess P. He wants her to experience the eternal darkness that he lives in in the dungeon. And so he concocts a plan once he finds this dearest desire of miggery Sal's. And he enlists her help. He uses her desire to allure her, to bait her into this plan where miggery Sal will help, will help get the Princess P from her bedroom into the dungeon. And then she will, Migory Sal will then take the queen's uh, royal crown, I mean the princess's royal crown, and go and become the princess. Like we said, Miggery Sal is not the sharpest tool in the shed. Her desire is to be loved and wanted and beautiful and treasured, for somebody to care about what Migory Sal cares about. But it leads to danger. It leads to darkness. It leads to, if, it, if the plan works, it leads to eternal darkness for the princess P, who never has done anything wrong to deserve that, certainly. And, if, and when, when Megary Sal is discovered, she will not become the princess she thought she was. She would get, at best, life in prison and maybe something worse. Megary Sal's desires are used as a bait to lure her into death. To ensnare her, which is what our passage is about today from James. James uh, uses that same metaphor, this this hunting metaphor, to talk about our desires and how these these things that we call small desires or or reasonable desires um, are used to lure us and ensnare us and bring about death. My disordered desires doom me to death but resisting in love leads to life. My disordered desires doom me to death, but resisting in love leads to life. We have been, uh, we're continuing our series on suffering, and, uh, and this is, uh, is continuing that thought as we turn towards the suffering of temptation. This is a, a passage in James where he deals with uh, how Christians, why Christians, why God's people, Ought to resist temptation. Do you know anything about uh, these these desires, these reasonable desires, ensnaring you? Have you ever experienced anything like that? I certainly have. Um, yeah, I've got all kind of uh, justifications for my little desires. Uh, this is where we get to come at this passage, like uh, like the passage encourages us to, and look at our love child which, no, I mean, they're supposed to get at least some titters and giggles like Love Child. It's kind of a, okay, never mind. <laughs> There's a song about it. It's a disco song. All right. Uh, the passage encourages us to look at the product of our love, what we actually love and what comes out of that when we give in to that desire. We need to look at our Love Child and see how our disordered desires doom us to death. Um, I recently re- realized that as I go to play basketball with uh, Ben Hubbard, he's not in the room, Ben always shows up, and and a bunch, and, and Lee Perry, also not here. Man, this is looking bleak. Never Calvin or Clint ball, they don't ever come, which would be good if they did. Who else? Anyways, a bunch of guys here. We all play basketball in the mornings, a couple mornings a week up at Covenant, early in the morning, uh, the only time that daddies aren't needed when everybody is asleep, so that's when we play, and I realized that when, uh, when I come home and Rachel asked me, how was basketball all this morning, I almost never remember if my team won or lost, which is a weird thing, right, you think, oh, I like to get up and compete a little bit, it's a lot of fun, I never remember if we won or lost, and then I started thinking back over the last number of weeks, lost that week, yeah, yeah we, my team, my team lost again, that week, we won one, but we lost two. We lost two of those. And I started thinking back, and I realized that my team typically loses. <laughs> I mean, we mix it up every week, right? You don't know exactly. Oh, there's Bryant. Bryant plays with us. Bryant Ingber's in the back there. I hate it when he guards me. Um, my team typically loses. And I realized that when Rachel asked me how was basketball, what I immediately think is, did I make my shots? Did I play good defense? Did I, um, did I get rebounds? Did I run the floor well? Did I do well? Do I feel like I played well? Um, do, did I look good? You know how my cutoff shirt, that, that's the only place I wear it. But were the guns blazing, you know? <laughs> like these are the things I'm thinking about when I wonder how basketball went that day. And your coach always tells you this, right? There is no I in. Loud. Okay, come on. There is no I in. Team. But there is a me. I don't know how they missed that. <laughs> but the next statement is always, right? Like, what happens if there is one person just looking out for themselves on the team? What happens? The team. You can say it out loud. The, yeah, they fought, the team falls apart, and like my team, we usually lose. Because I'm thinking about, do I get my shots? I'm not thinking about, uh, can I get the ball to Ben Hubbard in a place where he's likely to score? Uh, can I uh, help Jeff Sandoff actually show up this morning when he said he would and not leave us hanging? Like, things like that. That's not, but I'm not thinking about that. I'm thinking about my own game. And it leads, uh, and you know, as, as, as teams go, that leads to death, right? Defeat is death. Some of you guys remember Kyle Taylor. Left not long ago, his wonderful family. Kyle actually kind of started this pickup game that I play in. And whenever Kyle came, his team won. <laughs> Kyle is unstoppable. He's awesome. He played at UCLA. He's really good. Um, Kyle was, is certainly by far and away the best basketball player in the gym, the best basketball player I know in this area right now, just because I don't know that many, but he's really good. <clears throat> Kyle never really scored all that many points in the game, but he, uh, he would make sure that, that his teammates had the best game of basketball they'd had in weeks. You'd leave a game when, you, when you, Kyle's on your team and think, man, I played well. And all that really happened was you stood there while Kyle drove to the basket and the whole defense had to collapse on it because that's the only way they're going to stop him. And he handed you the ball and it like deflected off your hands into the goal. (laughs) I was good today. Like that's just the way he played because he was not, enticed and allured by this desire to be the best player in the gym or to be known as the best player in the gym or to be famous somehow or to be respected. He wasn't lured away by that desire. He was uh, resisting that. And his whole team found what for a basketball team is life, right? We played well together. We moved better. We passed better. We scored more points and beat the other guys. My disordered desires doom me to death, um, even little ones, like wanting to, be, wanting to feel good about how I played that morning. Migory Sal's disordered desire allured her into uh, bringing about death and darkness, even for the whole kingdom. My disordered desires doom me to death. And this is when we get to ask, um, well, well, how about you? What kind of children are your desires giving birth to? I love that James says desire conceives. With whom, James? I don't know that doesn't make any sense, but he doesn't really care. It's not like a tight metaphor. Desire just has babies on its own. <laughs> desire conceives and gives birth to sin. What I love about this is James is not saying pick apart your, your little heart, like get in there and kind of... Enter this ethereal realm where, there, uh, where you have to kind of swim in your murky emotions and find out what's really going on inside it. He's he just not worried about that. He says, look at your babies. Look at what actually happens. And then work back from there, and then you can probably find some disordered desires that are causing death. Have you ever had a, a relationship at work that just felt prickly? It was just like there was sandpaper on your skin anytime this person was around. And, like, even when you try and be cordial, it just gets turned and nothing, and you can't even really speak well together. And you just kind of you avoid really talking because you know if you do, it'll end up getting kind of snippy. Do you have these relationships? What is wrong? I'm trying to make sure he gets his parking space. I'm holding the door for her when she comes in. You know, I don't don't move their lunch once it's in the fridge. I just kind of work around it, make sure it's all in place. You know, manners aren't probably what broke that relationship, and so manners and etiquette aren't probably what's going to fix it. You've got this relationship that just feels like sandpaper. It just feels prickly. What may be going on? Why is there some kind of, like, child of sin or, like, some kind of negative... Love child, right there. What am I loving in this situation? And it occurred to me that if it was me, that's because I, w- when I'm in those situations, when I'm in a, in a work environment, I want to contribute. I want to be a helper. I want to do things that will uh, that will increase the bottom line. I want to be I want to be um, a significant part of the team. Well, if that's what I want. What does that mean when I'm in my group and we're planning a project? Who's, who's who am I probably going to make sure gets the part of the project that'll kind of get the most kudos or that I feel best about doing, that I feel like I could really do that? If I'm really wanting to to be to, to have a claim, to to be recognized as contributing and helping, then then I can't possibly be focusing on, on kind of giving somebody else a compliment. Because that would take attention off of me. You see, uh, when we want some kind of little tiny thing, it can can pull us along. It can allure us. And then all of a sudden, we're entrapped in a relationship that is just deathly. And all because of a little desire to be helpful. To contribute. Look at your love child. Have you ever found yourself um, just sharing too much. Like, why did I Why did I tell them about that relationship? Like, why did I just reveal that? I don't know them well enough. I don't even know, know if they're trustworthy. I feel like I'm going around and just telling people, like, I just opened myself up about, about my sin and, and kind of what's hard in my life right now. And, or even good things, like I just let them into my very heart. I just as... But at the same time, I'm not like I don't even know that person, and and I feel I feel like I don't have anybody who really knows me, even though I go around spilling my insides to everyone. I have this desire to connect. I want somebody to know me and affirm me. I want to be known by somebody. I want to know them. I want to uh, I want to share life with somebody. But you know, the more that you share that those parts of yourself. Now, I'm going to say, this goes for your insides, but it also goes for your body, too. The more you share yourself, the more you degrade that. The more you're saying over and over, I'm not all, like, what's inside of me, my emotions, my story, even my body, are not all that precious or sacred. I can share them with you if maybe I think it'll benefit you, if maybe I think it will draw you to me. And you start to Lose the dignity that God has given you and you wonder, why am I not connecting with anyone? Why do I not feel close to anyone? It's a little desire. I want relationships. But it, it ensnares us and pulls us away and leads towards death. You ever find yourself just exploding at the people closest to you? Not often. I mean, just... Like, usually you're really amenable and, and helpful and kind of there and present. Yeah, and listening, and I want to do what you want to do. That's just fine. But every once in a while in seemingly kind of small situations, you explode either with volume and you start to yell or just with some kind of passive-aggressive like, oh, no, I just decided to take the keys and, and uh, go to a movie today instead of work because that's what I wanted to do. You know, uh in some kind of way that you're just going to put your foot down and I'm going to get my way this time, dang it! Do you find that that kind of acting out, that kind of doing something uh, loud, and actions are in, are in words, and it's kind of dis- and it disintegrates, it corrodes a relationship. Well, where is that death coming from? Where is that happening? What 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 about me is what am I wanting right there? That's that's ensnaring me. Well, maybe it's um, maybe it's that, that you just want to be heard. Maybe if I listen to them really well, if I give them their way almost all the time, then surely every once in a while they'll start to give me my way. They'll start to give me what I want. They'll start to listen to me. If I just give way and give way and, get, and then and then you, but but you're always you're always building up this expectation. When's it coming? When's the payoff coming? When are they going to actually notice me and take notice of what I want and listen to me? And then the payoff doesn't come often enough or big enough. It never does. And then there's an explosion. I'm going to demand my way. I'm going to take it, no matter what it costs. You only speak in like a tiny whisper or like rock concert volume. Well, nobody can hear if you're whispering or if you're, sh- if you're screaming. You see, it's that desire to be heard. It's just a small desire, but it allures you and it pulls you away and it leads ultimately to death, to, to the d- destruction of, of a relationship. Where, where did those baby sins come from? Where did those little love children come from? If our, desi- our, our disordered desires doom us to death, but resisting in love leads to life. I love that um, what James kind of pushes out here. He says that, uh, I mean, life and death are in the balance here. Does that seem like a little bit hyperbolic? Like a little overstated? All right, James. Just because I want to be noticed at work, death is in the balance? Seriously? James has taken a well-worn and under-celebrated kind of path here in convincing God's children um, of of how we should behave, how we should act, how we should trust. He's taken the path of convincing us that we're a lot bigger than we thought we were. Paul takes this same path in, in 1 Corinthians when he's talking about sexual temptation. He says, what are you thinking? You're going to do what with your body? Don't you know that your body is the roadmap of God's salvation? Don't you know that your body is where the Holy Spirit resides? Don't you know you are so precious and, and wonderful and beautiful? How could you take that wonderful, gi- gigantically awesome body and give in to sexual temptation? Does it, it just, doesn't it feel small now and ridiculous? James is doing the same thing here. Don't you see that you have the power of life and death in your hands? Don't you see how gigantically powerful and big and important you are? Don't you see but just giving into to that little desire, how you wreak havoc around you? In Greek myths, there's these people called the demigods, and they are the, the children of, of gods uh, and men and humans. And they, they were incredibly powerful, and they could do awesome stuff, probably. Uh, and they, they, like, vanquished magical foes and saved entire cities and, and rescued uh, damsels and all these amazing things, uh, defeated monsters. And Hercules is probably the most powerful or the most popular of these. Um, and Hercules is given these seven trials that he has to complete. They're way too big for any man to complete, right? But one of them is he's got to kill the Nemean lion, which has impenetrable skin, but is like terrorizing this whole region, and nobody can defeat the Nemean lion. Do you remember how he defeats the lion? Anybody? You can say it out loud. Uh, you kind of know, Emerson. You got it? Kind oh, of uh, good guess. It does come from the inside. He's got to shoot him in the mouth. So he's got to get the lion angry first, so it roars at him, and then he shoots him in the mouth. So he's got to be smart, but he's also really powerful, and he defeats it. And then this other one, which is kind of silly, but... He has to clean out the stables of these gigantic horses, and the stables have never been cleaned, and no man could possibly pick all the horse droppings out of these stables. But Hercules, because he's smart and he's also powerful, actually diverts the natural course of a river. So the river then uh, comes out of its natural course and rushes through the stables, leaving them pristine and clean. Way to go, Hercules. Who could forget Annabeth, though? Like who, who would Percy Jackson be without the daughter of Athena, Annabeth? She brings so much life and wisdom and insight and help on all those quests they share together, right? They're demigods. They're the children of the gods. Does that sound familiar? Behold what manner of love that the Father has given unto us that we should be called children of God. Big. You're powerful, and James wants to remind us of that. You have the power of life and death. You can divert a river, and bring cleanness and purity, or you can wash it through a city and wipe the whole thing out. You have power in your hands. What does God think about this? How does he? How does he? Um, Pick us up in this moment where we're thinking, I've got these desires that allure me away and bring about death, but I can bring a life. I can bring be an agent of massive life. James talks about, uh, he starts this letter, like I said earlier, with trials. And he says that trials actually come from God. Trials or tests are these these opportunities that God brings about in our life to refine our dependence on him so that ultimately our faith and our, I mean, excuse me, our joy can be full, that our dependence on him can be more complete, and our joy, our our contentedness in this life, uh, our unwavering happiness can be complete. That's God's good plan for trials in our life. But with every trial comes hand in hand a temptation. An opportunity to engage that circumstance on our own, with our own means, for our own purposes and apart from God. That's why James says if you engage in these apart from God, it brings about sin. Sin, that's a great way to understand sin, like living life apart from God. Not trusting, not not trusting obedience, but depending on yourself. Depending on your own eyes. That's why we read the passage from Genesis, Eve looked and saw and judged for herself that the fruit is good, and took it. That's a a good way to understand sin when we look and see and judge for ourselves what's good, and take it. He moves to temptations in this section. This is the transition where James takes up temptations. Temptations come from within. The trials are from God, but the temptations are ours. They're not... Uh, temptations are not from God, because who could resist God's temptations? Then you could just throw up your hand and say, oh, well, I can't do it. He goes to temptations. James wants us to know the the dangers of these disordered desires. First, he talks about them like a trap. He uses two good metaphors here. The first one is like a trap. And the uh, NIV kind of obscures that just a bit here. It's not as clear as in other translations, but in other translations it talks about being um, enticed and ensnared or entangled. So, what's this? Does anybody know? <laughs> Can you say it? Who said that? Somebody. Said it. This was uh, what Hank chose with his grandmother's great grandmother's gift certificate to a hunting and fishing store. He wanted the, the lure. Um, what is what's going on here? What what happens with a fishing lure? How does this thing work? This is easy. What do you do, what do you do with it? But what does the fish get instead? The hook. That's right. Here, watch out for that hook. Oh, we caught it. There's no hook. I try to cut it off. Hold that up every once in a while just in case people forget, okay, Cannon? You can't keep that of tanks. <laughs> the the lure, the lure is is deceptive and secretive. It doesn't it's not what it appears to be at all. Right? Temptation doesn't, it wouldn't work if it was obvious. James is helping us understand that these things are going to be secretive. They're going to promise something that they actually won't deliver on. We're being enticed. Here's a good, here's a good meal. Here's something that you want. But when we give in, there's a hook. And we're ensnared. Uh, we're we're uh, ensnared. We're captured. James uses a hunting metaphor to help us understand that. The second one he uses the stages of life. He says that uh, desire conceives all by itself, like Shmi Skywalker giving birth to Anakin. Weird. Uh, all by itself, and then, um, and then when when uh, when it gives birth, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, sin gives birth to death. He's helping us see that this uh, this pattern. Um, this trajectory. That is, when, when you live for your lusts, it takes you further and further from God, and the further you are from God, the closer you are to death, right? My disordered desires doom me to death, but resisting in love leads to life. He starts this whole, pro- oh, this whole section, though, with a promise that those who resist the trials, those who stand firm under the test, will get the crown of life. It's a victor's crown, which he has promised to those who love him. Loving God and resisting these snares go hand in hand. you guys know the difference between a correlation and a causation? I had to learn this in, um, in science class. Where's Darcy? Do you teach this to your kids, correlation and causation? I think I learned it in high school science. That's why I asked. She doesn't. She just lets them draw their own conclusions. Okay, correlation and causation. Some things are related by cause. When you do this, this happens because of the first. But some of them just occur together and they're not actually related. Right? So when I dress up as Batman, there are crimes for me to solve. Right? If I dress up as Batman, it doesn't actually produce the crimes. I'm just more aware of them. And I go and fight those crimes bravely and ferociously. That's a correlation. When I dress up as Batman, stuff in my house gets broken. You know, I'm like running around and jumping off furniture and the cape is swishing around and knocking glasses off the camera. That's a causation, right? If I had not dressed up as Batman, and I'm speaking as my sons here, not I as in me, then those things wouldn't be broken. They would still be whole had I not dressed up as Batman. That's a causation. Correlation and causation. James is saying there's a there's a causation when you love God you are able to resist and life comes when you love God more than your little desires more than your little desires right the ones that that ensnare us and drag us away when you love his ways when you trust in him when you depend on him life comes out of that the crown of life or as Eugene Peterson says life and more life is the result it's a causal relationship I think it's a, t- it's a bit of a tough, it's a bit of a tall order, though. I'm supposed to identify all these lures, these traps that are hidden cleverly, that promise me things that I want desperately. I'm just supposed to say no to those good things and be able to decipher which ones are bad and which ones aren't. I'm supposed to be able to decipher, uh, you know, the 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 offspring of my desires and work back really difficult. I'm supposed to just churn up this love for God that would make me say no to all the things I really enjoy in life, like getting noticed and getting my way. You know, this passage would be a lot tougher if James, I think he's got in mind uh, another crown even as he references this one. I think he is thinking of another crown that he's seen. Not an emperor's crown or an athlete's crown but the crown of thorns. You see, before we can wear the crown of life, someone else had to wear the crown of death. Before we could wear the crown of nearness to God and life, Jesus on the cross had to wear the crown of curse and distance from God, of judgment. On the cross, Jesus took on himself does offspring called death. All of our little desires that ensnare us and entrap us and take us away produce death ultimately and that death was all poured out onto Christ on the cross so it would not be poured out onto you and me. And in exchange, the offer of Christ is the crown of life. You have the crown of life. You have been given it. If you receive what he's given you, what he's done for you. Life and more life. And knowing that can produce a heart that loves God more than your own way. The crown of life is for the one who resists out of love for God. Every other desire will ultimately lead to death. Where does that leave you and me? My, if my, disor- my disordered desires doom me to death, but resisting in love leads to life, where do we go from here? One of the um, most enlightening conversations I've had on this was with uh, a gentleman sitting here today, Matt Brown. He said I could say his name. Matt and I were talking, had a great conversation. Just light bulbs went on for me. Um, he talked about his own personal uh, allurements, the the the, uh, the bait, the temptations that are right out in front of him that promise so much life to him. And, uh, and the way uh, when he's got inside of him—I'm going to paraphrase, Matt, it was a couple years ago—inside of him is this energy and this creativity and this motion and these desires. And, when, and he's got this inside of him, this huge capacity, like we talked about, this capacity to bring life and death— and when he but when he engages in these these alluring desires, all of that energy flows there into a place that ultimately leads to death. But when he's able to resist, and you guys know Matt. When he's able to resist in love for God, this energy, this creativity, this passion gets funneled into writing songs and and drawing pictures and into loving conversation and wise counsel and sacrificial love for his family and life comes out of it he's got this huge energy right this huge capacity this huge power that james has reminded us of and you can funnel it into death or you can funnel it into life what does that mean for the person who wants influence who just wants to contribute that means you can say no to that desire that I to, to be recognized as a helper, as a contributor, as significant. And you can start to give to that partner the parts of the project that will make them shine. You can start to call them out in front of everybody else as having done a great job and take the attention off of yourself because you know what? The crown of life is not going to be given by your boss. The crown of life is not going to be given by the money you can make in advancing in that job. When you want to be heard, when you want to be heard, resisting that desire to clam up and manipulate your way into, get, into getting heard. You can resist that and take a bold stroke and say, I'm going to speak out in this moment and risk disruption. I'm going to risk this person being upset. I'm going to speak out gently and patiently and in a measured way. And, and allow this person to really know me, not in a way that's a whisper or or, or a rock concert shout, but something that uh, actually invites them to hear. You've been heard by the God of the universe. Surely you can take a risk on your spouse. What about oversharing? We are people who are generous with our help, stingy with our bodies, and cautious with our emotions and our stories. That means sometimes we'll have to say no when we want to reveal to somebody just how insightful we are about our own sin, or just how wise we are about our own circumstances. And we need to we can hold it close and say that's that's not for them. I don't need to reveal that about myself right now, and and forego the uh, the respect that that person may have, or the connection we may feel in that moment as we share vulnerably. But you know. Just like boundaries, just like a fence makes for a good garden, a fence can keep out those creeping weeds and the the animals that want to eat the produce. Boundaries make for good relationships. Boundaries make for good relationships. If you eat the dessert before the main course, it ruins the meal. It brings life. It can bring life to that relationship when you're measured. When you say no to that desire to connect now, And resist and love for God, trusting that he's going to give you what you need. All right, lastly, what would our family at Rock Creek look like? Who would we be as a family if we began more often resisting our temptations and love for God? If we began identifying the love children in our lives and working back to those small desires that are leading us astray, that are hooking us in. There are any number of things that would do for our community. I thought I'm gonna share one that, that has occurred to me: time. I think we would we could be a people of time. What would happen if we were the place that had time? If we were the place that were saying no to our, our ambitious lusts, and giving the best parts of ourselves to those alluring desires. We'd have time. We would be the place that people would say, do you know that that is a place that will, those are people who will respond to need. Those are people who will respond, who will stop and have a conversation. Those are people that have time to listen. That church, I don't know what they got going on over there. But they seem to never be in a hurry. They seem to be calm. What would that do for the reputation of Jesus in this community? It would help people start to imagine that Jesus is present, that Jesus has time for them, that Jesus listens well, that Jesus cares deeply. Will you say no? to the desires that doom us to death. So you can say yes. Yes to a life of resistance and loving God that brings a crown of life. I sure hope you will. Amen.